when nobody's in the office. So best of luck. Or, you know, if you're just doing your first job as, you know, a, a marketing intern and there's nobody in the office uh, for you to learn from and therefore you're, you're kind of stuck doing episodic stuff that's never really as fulfilling. I, I think it's, it's really challenging, kind of, kind of no matter what you're doing. Great. So we, we can look forward to their starting drinking and also becoming media influencers with their, with their free time. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, well, well, good. But why don't we start? So uh, a big welcome to our live audience for coming to this episode of Digital Health Investor Talk. Today's topic is what's next for innovators, challenges for CEOs in the new environment with our guest, Evan Richardson. I'm your host, Stephen Wardell. I'm the managing partner of Wardell Advisors, a digital health advisory firm uh, to young digital health companies and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors is helping digital health companies address issues around growth, business development, fundraising, and strategic alternatives. Our guest today is Evan Richardson, the founder and CEO of Form Health, the leader in medical weight loss, and an investor at SignalFire. He also sits on the board uh, of Bicycle Health and Crossover Health. Welcome, Evan. Thank you very much for having me, Stephen. Always fun to connect. Thanks. Uh, so this show is being recorded as a podcast in the Digital Health Investor Talk show. This is not investment advice, and we are not investment advisors. We'll be talking for about 40 minutes, and after that, I'll be taking call-ins from our audience. In order to do more than just listen, you need to register an account with Colin, and you can still do that right now. Finally, you can also email me, Stephen Wardell, your questions throughout at Stephen at WardellAdvisorsLLC.com, S-T-E-V-E-N at WardellAdvisorsLLC.com. I'll read your question, and in that case, I will treat the writer's name as private. Um, so, Evan, why don't we start with what's going on in uh, in digital health. Uh, and so, um, what do you have any picks as to what the news of the week was this week? Uh, gosh, you know, I think that there's a lot happening. I think, um, you know, it's probably the, the biggest one, uh, just for the whole segment, but also for, you know, kind of any, um, any venture backed company was probably the, you know, the inflation news uh, that, you know, things were getting a little bit better, but not a lot better. And the reason that was a big deal is because, you know, that will directly bear on Fed interest rate decisions. And I think, you know, to some extent, everybody uh, that takes uh, that takes capital from venture investors uh, is, is kind of waiting to see what the heck happens uh, with the interest rate environment. That, that's great. Uh, and, uh, you know, just to add to that, uh, I think we also heard the other week the Fed raised rates by a quarter point and that, that mm -hmm. expected to raise rates by another quarter point. Um, mm -hmm. That was very positively. A lot of the, the noise we see in the market regards growth companies, which is tech and mm -hmm health companies. And we saw some lift in that market because of that, because it meant the that the Fed wasn't going to go on rapidly raising at, at 0.5 point rates. Uh, and so do you, is that is that really good news for digital health? Do you think that the... <laughs> I, I'm a little bit more of a pessimist, uh, Stephen, around this? And I have, um, you know, I, I guess to me, 
there's not substantial signs and, and look, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not a, a deep macroeconomist here, right? But there's not substantial signs of economic slowing. And the notion of truly pulling off a, a real soft landing here, I think has always seemed remote. Now you have folks talking about, you know, uh, uh, no landing, right? That we may continue to grow at some, at some, you know, small rate as the Fed continues to, to raise rates. To me, that just feels like wild optimism. You know, I think, um, uh, expectations always take a while to adjust. And, and you see that right now in the funding environment. When you talk to uh, founders of later stage companies or uh, you know, executives at later stage companies that have uh, a view for you know, the, the, the valuations that were getting put on companies like theirs or on their company you know, at their last round. Uh, and yeah, everybody knows the world shifted, but it's still taken a long time for their expectations to really shift to, to what reality is. I think actually, you know, investors to, to some extent, uh, uh, whether private investors or public market investors are the same. There was so much, uh, unmitigated good news, uh, sort of, you know, from a macroeconomic perspective, right? You know, you had, you had Fed actions for years and years that kept interest rates low, uh, that I think it's actually hard for folks to, uh, envision what Oh, you know, what the world might look like. And now we're sitting with interest rates at levels that, you know, nobody's seen for ages, uh, coming off of, you know, historically low interest rates. And I just think, you know, everybody says, okay, well, you know, things are going to change quickly. Uh, we're going to, you know, we're going to have the Fed slow, uh, and, and maybe start to pull back on interest rates before the end of the year. To me, that feels bizarre to say when you also look at, you know, the tightest employment, uh, that we have seen in, uh, you know, in, in decades and decades, depending on how you want to think about the unemployment measure. And when you're also seeing, you know, continued inflation that is well above the uh, Fed inflation target, even when everybody kind of looks at the inflation that they see in the macro numbers and then looks at the inflation they see on their credit card statement every month and says, you know, those macro numbers are, are, are way off. You know, we're still looking at a period of, of wildly high inflation versus historical. So to me, this feels a lot more like a bear market rally. This feels a lot more like optimism around what the Fed's going to do. And I, I, I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. But I, you know, I hope I turn out to be a wild pessimist. I hope I look back on that six months from now and say, that was dumb. Uh, clearly, I was wrong. Uh, but, but to me, it just feels like, you know, it's way too easy if, if, this, is, if this is reality. So allegedly, uh, digital health VCs are sitting on the sidelines and not investing because they think we that the NASDAQ has not found bottom and that the NASDAQ could be another 30%. So do you think that's still a possibility? Or uh, you, you mentioned being pessimistic. Do you think that's still a possibility? <laughs> still gonna see on yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think that that's for sure a possibility. And look, I mean, you know, I have every reason, um, you know, as a as a founder here, as a shareholder in other, you know, more mature uh, digital health companies, I have every reason to hope that, that, that um, the NASDAQ goes nowhere but up from here. But um, I think that, you know, just I, I guess look at just look at the what reversion to any kind of historical mean would mean. And, you know, I think from a, you know, from a, a PDE, uh, from a, uh, you know, from a revenue basis, right? Like just if you take a look at, you know, any time period longer than the last decade, a reversion to mean would be uh, a significant down leg from where we are today. And so unless we think that, you know, that there's a, a really fundamental shift that has happened in the way that, uh, uh, you know, investors are going to value cash flows over the long term, or unless we think there's been a dramatic shift in the risk profile of these, you know, early stage digital health 
and other NASDAQ assets. I mean, it, again, it seems bizarre to me to say that, you know, like we're done with, with the, 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 the degradation in the public markets. Great. And so moving on to the next topic, you know, news, news of the week, um, we have the ending of public health of the federal public health emergency. So to me, this seems uh, to matter telehealth, but not at the federal level where I I understand there's been an extension of uh, promotion of telehealth at the federal level for two more years in in legislation in the past. But at the state level, you actually have actors at the state level who don't like telehealth. Specifically, this is top doctors in states <laughs> who, who sit on <laughs> medical advisory boards don't like telehealth. So there's all these easements in telehealth, like in the old days, you had to have an in-person relationship first and could you could you telehealth later, uh, or you had to um, be in, in the states to do telehealth, or you had to, mm-hmm. or telehealth could be used for ABC, but not for most things and not for XYZ. Um, and those were eased during the pandemic because uh, medical sites became infection control points uh, and everyone had to use telehealth. But now at the state level, we face um, the ending of public health emergencies at the state, followed by the need for legislation or uh, state medical board rules, um, keeping telehealth just as as uh, available. And you may actually see some pullback by who don't like it. So that, that's what I see as the consequence. And you have to watch that level. What, what do you see as public health end, emergency ending? Oh, I think I think it's it's really interesting, and I think what I see is um, is first and foremost a fair degree of uncertainty. I think that this, the 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 story that you just told about how this could play out at the state level is not unreasonable, and we are likely to see. I expect states where um, you know if the if the federal government. Um, you know, uh, 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 you know, doesn't put other rules, policies, or laws in place. Uh, you know, we could see a material pullback for, um, for 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 telehealth care. I don't actually expect that to happen. As pessimistic as I am on the you know on the the, the Nasdaq and the sort of broader valuation side over the next eighteen months, I'm actually fairly optimistic when it comes to uh, telehealth. And I think the biggest reason for that is uh, patients don't want to go into a brick and mortar facility anymore. And yes, there's plenty of stuff that happens in healthcare that's not always in a patient's interest for sure. But I think on this one, it's it's really hard to put that genie back in the bottle. You know, I think uh, the last several years of being able to access a physician, uh, you know, easily uh, have have shown that, you know, for patients, it's a much, it's a much smoother uh, path. I do think that it is going to be more difficult the less your clinical model looks like an in-office visit. And so, you know, for those, uh, for those companies where, you know, you're seeing somebody by a, a web form, seeing them in, you know, quotation marks, uh, you're, you're seeing them by a web form and prescribing a medication, uh, especially uh, medications that are a little bit more risky. You know, you could think about, uh, you know, some controlled substance prescribing that may have been in the news here, you know, over the course of last year, uh, uh, where, you know, I think a very different clinical model was in place versus what you typically see. I think those models will have the hardest time. And I think the more your clinical model looks like a traditional doctor visit that happens to occur 
online, the, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the safer you'll be, the more opportunities you're going to have for growth. I think there's wild patient demand for not having to get in the car, drive someplace, pay for parking, sit in the waiting room, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think it's a lot harder as, you know, a, let's just, let's just, you know, sort of say, you know, a, a, a made up unfriendly state medical board. It's a lot harder to say why a patient shouldn't be able to have a face-to-face video visit uh, you know, as opposed to why they shouldn't be able to fill out a form and get controlled substances in the mail, right? One of those seems obviously different from the other. Okay. Anything else on on the end of the public health emergency? Yeah. Look, I think that I think that the uncertainty here is going to ring out in the next, uh, you know, in the next in the next uh, two months, and uh, I think that we, you know, we we could see some surprises from DEA. I think the biggest questions are. Uh, especially around controlled substances, uh, you know, and then there's different, there's different categories, right? You know, for those folks that are getting treatment for opioid use disorder, I think the future is pretty bright for telemedical services because there is just such a wild societal need and a wild patient need there. Uh, you know, for, for folks that are, you know, uh, getting Adderall prescribed by a telemedicine, especially in a format that doesn't look like uh, a standard physician's visit, I think, you know, we can expect a much tighter rain than has been on there for the last two or three years. So I do think that this is going to impact business models in a real way, depending on what that clinical model has been. But we don't yet quite have enough clarity from DEA and from uh, from you know the other uh, governing bodies uh, to really say how it's going to fall. Okay, great. And so if this was five quarters ago, we would then talk, we would now talk, we would talk about all of the many uh, fundraises that had happened, but it's, but it's present day and <laughs> The layoff announcements. And so there have been a lot of layoff announcements. Uh, recently, Philips uh, announced a layoff of 6,000 uh, and Noom yep. announced Noom, which was a, a high flyer that I like the business model of a lot and has cracked the code for figuring out how to sell uh, to consumer, how to sell healthcare to consumers through, through apps. Um, they had a second round of layoffs recently. Um, any, do you see any, any significance in, in layoffs? Um, any, any that you would want to call out or any, any, any insights emerging from layoffs? You know, I just, I, look, I think this is, this is all, uh, this all goes back to, you know, the end of free money. And, and, you know, I'm, I, in order to talk a little bit more about that, but, you know, I think, um, you know, we are, we are now in a world where every single one of these models has shifted from a growth at any cost model to a, profitability uh, at all costs model. And uh, those two have wildly different staffing requirements. And, and so I think, you know, right now, if you, uh, if you see a company in health tech broadly, that is, that, that, that's going through round of layoffs, I think that should not be a surprise. And honestly, it probably doesn't tell you too much right now. You know, if, if folks are doing layoffs, six, eight months ago, I think that was pretty telling about the business model and what was working or not. But if you're seeing layoffs right now, I don't think that says very much about, you know, whether that business is healthy or not. Uh, I think that there are a lot of very healthy business models that, uh, you know, are probably overtuned for growth and therefore, you know, uh, are, are cutting back just as a result of, you know, revised expectations around market growth. I think, though, that if you see a, uh, if you see, uh, a business model that is uh, that is not going through rounds of layoffs or uh, you know is is growing or planning to grow significantly that's a real big tell actually right and i think you know whereas 
18 months ago, growth of your headcount was was expected. And if you weren't growing significantly, then clearly something was was wrong. That was the sort of dominant narrative. I think actually now it's shifted. If you're able to grow in this environment, if you're growing your patient population, if you're as a result, you know, growing your head count to support that, I think that has actually, you know, a signal of a uh, of an entity that's, you know, it's on a breakout path. And so to me, uh, the thing to watch out right now is not the layoff news. It's kind of the non-news of growth. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's sort of where I would be looking if I was either a, you know, if I was, uh, you know, somebody trying to figure out uh, where I wanted to land and where I wanted to spend the next five years of my working career. Um, or, you know, if I was, if I was somebody that was, that was, uh, uh, you know, looking around at investment. And so you might see a scenario where, you know, you've got six well-funded, uh, venture backed companies all in the same, uh, niche and all, you know, raised money and spending for growth five quarters ago. Uh, and now they've all cut back except one that might have have a strong venture fund decided to make a bet, put a super on top of their company. And then that company spends for growth and steals the best salespeople and, uh, you know, a- acquires missing in its suite, uh, uh, in, its, in its product suite. Um, and uh, there's Absolutely. a breakout to happen for and it's not necessarily based on having the best product or the best management team. It's based on having the best uh, funding backers who, who will well i look i think it's i think it's got to be both right i think you know great funding backers um you know right now it, it is very hard to find um you know in, any investor that is willing to say well i don't know the fundamentals of this business are still not strong but since everybody's pulled back you know like go ahead like let's take a flyer right i think you're not seeing a ton of that i think you've got to have both i think you've got to have you know the strong management team improving good and improving business fundamentals and backers that that can see through you know what feels like a, a, a you know a little bit of a dislocation in this market right now it's easy it's not as bad as it was 12 months ago right 12 months ago the dislocation was was total um but i think you still have to have really good performance uh and then i think you're right like in, in some ways it's the least it's the least interesting thing to say right like hey if you can invest and everybody else is pulling back you're going to do well but that's that's the phase of this market that we are now moving into Mm-hmm. And I, I actually foresee more layoff announcements for at least the next two quarters, if not the next four quarters. I think it's going to be more belt tightening, more layoff announcements. Yeah. I, um, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right, especially at the at the bigger tech companies. I think that you know you, you're going to see you're going to see shutdown announcements at the smaller places, uh, but but you know maybe different from layoffs. And then I think you know places like you know like Google and Amazon and others are going to continue to find that now they've taken a hard look at it there's actually more places to reduce staff okay moving on so next uh, chat in in the last couple of weeks chat gpt passed its us medical licensing exam i guess that makes it doctor gpt now uh, and uh, <laughs> and just this past week uh, a letter was published in the journal of the american medical association where the writer said that chat gpt appropriate answers to 21 out of 25 cardiovascular disease prevention questions. I guess the, the issue there is just JAMA getting into the act and, and sort of, uh, uh, you know, raising this to the attention of doctors um, in a favorable context. Uh, do you see any, any story here? Any, any kind of, you know, where, where might we see this be used in healthcare? You know, I mean, um, this is one where I think, um, where I think we're going to see it, everywhere and at the same time where you know i think that um 
a lot of the opportunities that we might sort of immediately think, okay, great, this will be, you know, this is a solved problem. Uh, those, those will go away. I think the obvious applications in healthcare are all the places where patients seek information today, but don't have to have, um, you know, don't need information that is tailored to them, right? So for example, you know, a patient that is looking to understand their cardiac diagnosis, which is a place where today physicians, you know, uh, uh, so, so uh, Form Health is an obesity medicine company. A lot of patients want to talk to us about, you know, the facts of their diagnoses or, you know, questions about medication interactions, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of those interactions you could absolutely see being handled by a chat GPT style tool. Um, a lot of other things, diagnostic and I think uh, you know, sort of a, a, a prescription or, you know, sort of a care decisions, I think are way outside, at least of what a tool like ChatGPT can do today or where we would trust ChatGPT. I think the, the bigger challenge, even for those informational uh, interactions, is patients so dislike talking to an automated tool that I think a lot has to actually evolve on the user side and not, not, anywhere aside from between the keyboard and the floor that is like in the user's head, they have to accept, they have to get used to this notion of, Hey, I can have an instantaneous high quality response and I can do that through a tool. This is fantastic. Let me jump on that right now. I think users tend to say, I don't want to talk to a robot. I want to talk about me. I want to hear from my doctor, what they think for me. And so I think, you know, we actually have a period of evolution there. I, I, I mean, I think I like everybody else have been, extraordinarily impressed by what this tool can do. You only have to spend 10 minutes poking around and asking, uh, asking chat GPT some questions to have a really uh, eye-opening experience. But I think that for a lot of users, it's going to take a while to get there. And, you know, I think in the, in the interim, some folks are going to try and hide chat GPT behind, you know, somebody that the patient thinks is real. That's going to reduce trust. Patients will sort that out, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think, you know, it's, it's just going to be a period of time measured in years before, uh, you know, before patients are able to accept this kind of interaction for informational needs. Great. So then, you know, in prospect, looking out at, at, at events that are coming up on the horizon. So um, one of them coming up next month is South by Southwest, which has a health and med tech track, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, which is in Austin, uh, March 11th through 20th, but the core digital health part is going to be March 10th to 13th uh, there. And uh, should digital health CEOs go to South by Southwest for any for anything more than parties and music? <laughs> well, you 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 um, beat me to the punch. I was going to say, if you like great party and uh, and good live music, it's definitely one to go to. I, you know, I think South by Southwest is is interesting. They before you know pre pandy uh, before the pandemic, they were gaining I think a lot of currency. Uh, you know, in the in the health space, I think you know they have really. Uh, in my perception, they have really taken you know several steps back over the last several years, um, and and so I think it'll be interesting to see if they can regain some of that spot. I I don't see them as a as a need to go to. I think that you know they have in a lot of cases been a um, a place to to be seen. There is value in being seen, but I think it really depends on your. Uh, you know, on, on your solution. So I think if your business uh, deals with uh, deals with challenges that are current in the press, or if your business deals with direct to consumer 
solutions. South by Southwest may not be a bad spot to be. Uh, you know, I think press coverage of the event is great. You can have a lot of uh, impromptu conversations with folks that then write articles in real outlets. Uh, and I think that can sometimes be pretty darn powerful. Uh, but I think if you are, you know, selling into hospitals, if you're selling into plans, if you're selling into employers, like forget it, I, you know, go, go because Austin's fun because Austin is fun. But, uh, I, you know, I, I'm skeptical of the ROI you'll see. Yeah. So, you know, this is definitely, this is not a normal conference on the digital health CEO tour. Um, <laughs> and, and what I was struck, so I, I went there as a sell side equity research analyst uh, and I wrote to hundreds of company CEOs to see if they were going and wanted to meet. And I filled up mm -hmm. my, my measure is if you can get four good meetings uh, a day, then the trip's worth it. Uh, and I was able to do that. I was able to sit in the hotel mm -hmm. lot and meet with, uh, with people. I was struck by a number of things. First of all, it was med tech CEOs were the ones who were there often mm -hmm. with a, a software story to their device. Um, mm -hmm. and that, that's what made them digital health, whether it was med tech with a software and data story. Sure. And they were very sure. early. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of early stage, not a lot of, of a lot of A, not a lot of B, C, D uh, companies. Um, people are there, you got CEOs are there, these early stage CEOs and some VCs are there. Uh, and, uh, 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 and they, they, they will meet, you know, they, uh, it's a non-dense conference. So someone is like happy to be there and in meeting mode and their day is not full. Um, and so they'll, they'll meet <laughs> Um, on the flip side, if you're that health tech uh, CEO and your day is not full, then you may reflect on the conference and say, I don't know if this was worth the trip, uh, uh, but, but, but it's, it's a fun place to go. In theory, a lot of media is there uh, and they're enjoying themselves. So you can get, you can get media exposure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And so, uh, uh, so that's, that, that was my uh, impression of, of South by Southwest. Um, and then um, uh, a, a lot of announcements happen there. Companies will make announcements and they'll have their product there. They'll have their demo there. And so you can, you yep. can, uh, so when a lot of people on this call would have gone to health in November in Las Vegas and at health, it was a great conference. And I think health has hurt South by Southwest because health definitely wants yeah. to include the audience of digital health when they go to South by but health is guaranteeing you that the VCs are all going to be there at health. And so, so if, if health is in November, you know, if you go to South by Southwest, you don't know if the VCs are going to be there. But if you go to if you go to health, you know, the VCs are going to be there. So the reason I brought up is and health is new and ascendant. And so it's it's actively undermining South by Southwest, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I would completely agree with you. I think eight, I think health has uh, hurt a lot of other conferences, including J.P. Morgan, probably in a way that J.P. Morgan doesn't really care about because, you know, they were never really focused on the early stage companies. But uh, the number of folks that went to HLTH this year, uh, went to health this year and you know didn't go to JPM was greater than it's ever been. Uh, and at least in my in my circle of friends, right? I think a lot of people said, "Oh gosh, I just went to, I just saw everybody, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago in Vegas. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take off and head over." I think you know, JPM continues to be uh, the only place to go for the later stage companies. That hasn't changed, and you know, I think uh, health is is trying to sort of uh, get up in that uh, range too. But they, you know, I think they've really, really, really um, done well in the early stage of companies.
So, I mean, the, the main tent at J.P. Morgan is public biotech, and everyone else is just kind of street right. performance compared to that. <laughs> That's right. So, but the reason I brought up health in the first place is they were pushing really hard uh, this conference Vive at March 26th to 29th in Nashville. And I noticed that a startup health is going to hold one of their festivals at Vive. So now you've got Vive and startup health. And tickets are 2400 bucks, and they were bragging about the attendees they're going to have a lot. Uh, and it's, pre it's pretty good to have Startup Health do one of their festivals. It, it means you got you got young companies covered in certain ways there. All that's good. It's also, it's also nice to go to Nashville in, you know, in March, um, uh, from, specifically from Boston uh, or from New York. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, and what I'm hearing about Vive, well, Vive is also co-sponsored by Chime, which is a a hospital uh, association. Uh, and so what I'm what I'm hearing is that this is for digital health companies that sell into the health system budget, um, the, the the hospital CIO budget, the health system budget. But it's not a company for uh, digital health CEOs who sell into the employer health benefit budget or who sell into the, yeah. the pharma uh, commercial IT budget, who sell into the payer IT budget or who sell into the consumer discretionary spend budget or who, uh, or who sell into the prescriber budget. It's not for those. It's, you know, but what are you hearing about? Should the digital health CEO go to Vive? Uh, I don't know of folks that are selling into uh, they're they're going D to C or they're selling into the employer benefit stack, which is where which is where we spend all our time. Uh, I don't know of anybody uh, heading uh, heading down to Nashville in March uh, from that crew. Not to say that it won't be interesting. I mean, I, uh, I I was fairly skeptical on health when it launched, uh, you know, just before the pandemic, and they've done an incredible job. So I wouldn't underestimate that crew this year. I'm not sure that this is one where you're going to see a lot of folks that aren't you know in you know on the hospital side. Mm -hmm. um, so when I, if I were selling at a, a, a CEO of a young company selling into the hospital budget, I think I would go to, to Vive um, to meet uh, product buyers uh, and uh, uh, sales channel partners. And the, uh, but presumably I would have already gone to health and, and met the VCs there. So uh, I would only... <laughs> I would revive if I was trying to use the in-person nature of it to force something, like to force someone to commit to my round, for example. Um, yeah, I think that's probably right. And I think, you know, if you're selling into other parts of the ecosystem, I'd save my money and I'd go spend it on a plane ticket to see your prospective customers. Yeah. Cool. So the next is just re uh, returning to some concepts that regard our, our changed landscape and our changed future. Um, people have been talking about, in the tech world, have been talking about this concept called regime change. And what regime change means is that since the global financial crisis, we've lived in a world of low interest rates and low inflation. And, and half the time was also a Wall Street public markets risk-on environment with an open IPO window. And that created a certain kind of environment. Today, we have literally the opposite on all of those uh, scores. We have record inflation at roughly you know, uh, 8% uh, or rough or so. We have we have a risk-free interest rate climbing to four to five percent with, with a further hike in the books. We have uh, public markets in a risk-off environment, which means that they somewhat crazily don't like all of the deals they used to like in the past that were risky. Um, <laughs> then closed IPO window. Um, 
And so that, that, that term is coming to us from the world of, of, uh, of tech, uh, which is bigger than the world of digital health. And so I, I would say that we are seeing regime change and we will see the completion of regime change. And you would just, you would build different products. You'd, you'd have a different company. You'd have a different budget. Uh, if you are living in a high inflation, high interest rate environment. So we're seeing it and the regime has changed in digital health. What, and that's going to be, we may not see a low inflation environment again for years. What do you think? Look, I think that, um, I think it's hard to call exactly how long we're going to see this level of inflation. I do think that, um, uh, it is, it's gonna, as I mentioned at the start, I think it's gonna stay higher longer than the stock market's currently giving inflation credit for. Uh, I think that we are deep into regime change already. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, uh, 2020, the mantra was growth at all costs. I had multiple conversations with, you know, good friends who, uh, said, you know, gosh, you know, on the investor side who said, uh, I don't care what the payback is on this customer acquisition, you just absolutely have to show growth, right? And if you're doing that on, you know, if you're doing that at negative LTV, fine. If you're doing that uh, and your and your cost of acquisition is more than your lifetime revenue, forget your lifetime value, your lifetime revenue for that uh, individual that you brought on the platform, fine. It just doesn't matter. That was a bizarro world. And at the time, everybody said, well, this can't last. And of course it didn't, but you know, to your point, that was just the culmination of the you know low interest rate environment that we had been sitting in for you know for 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 a decade or so, uh, and you know I think that's that's done. You don't see a lot, and you haven't seen for the last year. You don't see a lot of companies getting funded. You don't see a lot of companies uh, uh, you know doing new rounds if their strategy is we're going to go pick up customers D to C. I think if anything. The market is way over rotated. And today you'll hear uh, investors and market participants saying, you know, nobody cares about D to C. You know, D to C is, D to C is almost toxic. You know, we'll value that at a one X multiple. And, and that's silly, right? You know, if you can pick up math, math still works. Math is still a thing, regardless of whether your customer is D to C or through, uh, you know, through an insurer or an employer. Um, you know, and if you can, if you can add a patient and provide great care at a, at a, uh, a low CAC to LTV ratio, you should do that. And I think, you know, the market will, will rotate back in this direction over time. Uh, but, but I would, I would absolutely argue that we're not in a world of regime change now. We're in a world where entrepreneurs are realizing that the regime has changed, but, but that regime change is complete. And if you think that you're going to, you know, start a company that looked like it might have looked in 2020, um, it's not going to happen. So the, the next term I'm hear, hearing thrown around is the term extinction level event. So this is also coming out of tech and digital health looks a lot to, from the, the investor perspective, digital health looks a lot like tech. It's a specialized version of B2B. Um, and uh, so um, uh, extinction level re event refers to this correlation of forces leading, we talked about layoffs and also cl close down notices. Uh, and so um, this, that, the theory here is that we're going to see a lot of companies, especially vulnerable young companies, not make it, shut down um, more than we've seen to date. Uh, uh, and that also, if you if you look at this, you know, the last couple of years, uh, these may have been companies with squishy revenue models, um, 
who were nevertheless able to get funding. And so you saw an under um, percent of companies, you know, closed down in the last five years. Uh, and now all of a sudden, all at once, uh, those companies that under different circumstances might have closed down three years ago, but somehow kept going, uh, are now going to finally close down. That's the extinction level event. And I'm even hearing that it's applying not only to digital health young companies, but also to venture funds. There's been an enormous entry of venture funds, whether it's new funds or tourist funds coming in from consumer or B2B. Um, and um, that, 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 that they're also going to either shut, either not raise the next fund or, you know, go back to the basics or something. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think? Well, are we, are we seeing that? Yeah. Well, look, I think on the, on the, uh, on the startup side, on the, on the venture backed entity side, Absolutely. And, you know, I think if a company hasn't been able to raise a round in the last eight months, um, what that probably means is one of two things, either, you know, they are doing fantastically well and have, you know, no need to do that. And they raised a monster round, uh, you know, sort of before the market changed and their market and their model is, you know, at, at the very least significantly gross margin profitable. And so they can, uh, they can sort of write their own ticket with controlled spending on the overhead side, or what it means is they are on death watch. And I think uh, it, it's it's only one or the other. I think for a lot of companies, you, you're absolutely right. They in a different in a different money environment, they would have shut down years ago. I'll go back to you know to the the sort of uh, you know uh, unnamed example of you know a company that's acquiring customers D to C at you know a price that is higher than their lifetime revenue from that patient forget lifetime value and and that was pretty commonplace for years uh, but those companies were able to show growth they were able to get funding on the basis of that growth even though every dollar that they spent was you know was was not only um, was not only adding to there was not only sort of direct burn but was adding to the pace of their burn uh, and so, you know, I think that is over. You're going to have a lot of companies. You have a lot of companies today that are trying to reevaluate their business model. We don't want to go D2C. We want to sell them to the employer. Uh, you know, we are going to become a software business and not a services business. We are going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to do different. Um, those pirouettes are incredibly challenging. And I think more often than not, uh, while they're trying to pull off that business model U-turn, most of those companies are going to hit the wall. Um, especially in what is right now a pretty, a pretty tight environment. And, 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 you know, look, I think, um, you know, you'll see, you'll see, uh, real challenges both in, in raising the next round and also for those that, you know, are looking to sort of navigate a, um, an orderly exit with an acquisition or something like that. I, I think that that's, you know, the, the challenge there has gone way up as well. The, the investment funds, I think, you know, Probably, almost certainly, but it's going to take it's going to take longer to cook out, right? Because if you, as a you know, as a venture fund, as you uh, if you raised your money in 2021, well, you've got you know you've got some lifetime on there. You're probably uh, you know trying to be pretty conservative right now. Your investors aren't uh, aren't shouting in your ear about why you're not placing more capital because right now everybody's happy if you say we're picking our deals, but you know like that fund is going to take longer to burn through and choose not to choose not to to even make a show of raising their next fund then you know probably the the venture backed entity and so i i think that you know we will see the 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 fallout on the venture side 
over the course of the next several years. You know, I think the other phenomenon is that we have so many funds that raised big, big, big funds and as a result have massive amounts of dry powder. You know, they got a lot of time. And, and right now, as you know, we shift from a, an environment where I think for a while funds were saying we're not going to make any investments to an environment where funds are saying we're going to pick our investments and we're going to do them at the right price. Well, you know what? Like that, that fund, if you raised a big old fund in, in, you know, 20, in, in late 2020 or early 21, you, you actually are looking at a pretty attractive environment right now to make new investments. And in a couple of years, when you go out to raise your next fund, uh, you know, you may be staring at a much, uh, a much different funding environment. You may have seen those investments appreciate and you may be in a pretty good spot, even if, you know, even if you don't have much of a track record, if you manage to raise a big enough fund, you've got time. And, and look, I mean, I think, you know, there's plenty of people on the VC side who will say, well, you know, you're, you're making a false, um, your, your premise is false. It's not really like you go out every couple of years. You're kind of always talking up your next fund. And, you know, if you're, if you're really not performing uh, well enough in the current, like that can kind of poison the well for you already. So, you know, I, it, it, it may not be quite as simple as, as I'm laying it out, but I do think that you're going to see the, um, you're going to see a lot of companies that never landed their business model hit the wall in the next 12 months. I think you will see, that for funds over the course of the next 24 plus months, it's going to take longer. And so, yeah, I, I talked to over 40 um, VCs and, and digital health CEOs over the last couple of months. Um, and what I'm hearing is that rounds like CD crossover and IPO mm-hmm. are not happening at all. Mm-hmm. That rounds like A and B are happening at a rate 30% of what it was in 2020. Uh, one, which was Highmark, um, mm-hmm. and that uh, investments at the level of angel and seed are happening at 80% of prior levels. Um, and that seems to be it's different people with seven-year timeframes and that sort of thing, which is why so much is happening there. And I've actually heard some, some VCs speculate that their strategy is going to be when, when they're looking for uh, prices to bottom, they're looking for the NASDAQ to pull in 30% or the Fed to uh, announce that uh, it's uh, stopped raising interest rates. Um, and they think they're going to get uh, into some of the Series C companies at a low price. And the reason mm-hmm. is that those are low risk. You're getting later stage, you know, maybe profitable, um, lower risk companies at a low price. You couldn't get them at a low price before. Um, but now, uh, now, uh, you, because you're you're ready to invest now, you'll be able to do that. So that that's, I've heard VCs speculating that that's how they're going to play the opening. Um, so I, I think that that is I think that's a a totally reasonable strategy. And uh, I guess the the challenge there will be if that's everybody's strategy, then pretty quickly folks will start to say, well, okay, we got to get in just ahead of it because if everybody else is doing that, then those prices are going to change and we'll sort of miss that bottom. And so I also wonder, you know, like. It, it may not have to be that the Fed says we're, we're done raising or, you know, that you really see inflation pull back. It may be that we have enough signs of slowing over, you know, a few Fed meetings or a few, uh, uh, a few uh, uh, inflation uh, announcements that you start to see it again. Look, I think that the general landscape 
Series C is roughly getting done still. Series A is getting done, but a lot less. And, and later stage is kind of not happening. I think that's right. I think you're starting to see some of the Series C um, uh, get done. But the change is it's getting done with folks that have to do it, and the prices are different. And, and the entrepreneurs that are doing a Series C right now, by and large, are not happy even though they're, you know, they get to keep playing, right? But in their world, getting to keep playing was was not the upside. In their world, you know, multi-billion dollar, uh, you know, multi-unicorn status was the upside. And now they're being told, you know, this is this is wildly different than they thought it was. Yeah, we'll give you money because you've got a real business that's operating, but, you know, like it's a very different environment. So I think um, those deals are happening even at sea, but the prices have changed and it's only happening for companies that got to get something done. So the next uh, phrase I'm hearing coming out of tech is this this idea of the low interest rate phenomenon. So the low interest rate phenomenon is something <laughs> that was part of our lives just a, just you know five quarters ago, um, and that uh, now in retrospect it's gone. It may be gone forever, and we can look at it as something that was only ever in our lives because of low interest rates. But I'm going to call out employers giving away thousands of Fitbits to employees for the sake of general fitness and morale and, and, and branding with their own employees uh, as something that, that companies did when interest rates were, when the risk-free rate was zero and that they're not going to do um, in the future. And that's, that's because of the irony of these devices often, um, which is that uh, the employees who would most use them are the ones who, um, need a free one from their employer the least and the ones who mm -hmm. uh, need take, take extra fitness steps the most are not going to take advantage of when, when, when it's given to them free by their employer. Yeah. Now, intriguingly, we are seeing a very different kind of device giveaway, which is providers giving devices like blood pressure monitors to patients uh, at home, clinical grade monitors, the patients measure themselves and the provider's then use codes for um, remote patient monitoring. That's a solid business model. That's, I think that's going to continue and grow. That's not the same thing as giving away. Uh, it, they're giving away a blood pressure monitor, um, uh, mm -hmm. but that's not the same thing as giving away a Fitbit for general health purposes. So, yeah, you, and, it, and it enables real revenue. Yep. Uh, and so what, when, when you look back on healthcare, do you see any phenomena that were part of our lives that we can now say are, were low interest rate phenomena? Oh yeah, I mean, I think there's, I think there's a ton of them. Um, you know, I think you could, you could argue, and, and to some extent, all we've been talking about for the last hour is that the explosion in health tech from you know 2018 to 2021 was a low interest rate phenomenon. Um, but in particular, I think there's, you know, for, for folks that are just starting a business, right? For folks that are looking to do a seed, uh, especially if you are trying to do a seed or trying to do a series A that includes, hey, we're going to sell into insurers or we're going to sell into employers. You know, there was a trust me model, right? That is, you know, hey, why don't you give me a little bit of capital? Why don't you commit to being uh, one of my early customers? And we're going to, we're going to experiment. We're going to do cardiac health via telemed, and we're just going to do it better. And uh, we'll sort it out, and we've got a bunch of ideas, and you know, but we need, we need your team to start working on it, right? We need your, your set of patients to start making progress here. People got that done. People were getting that done for, for years, right? And I think that becomes really hard to pull off 
uh, unless you are someone as an entrepreneur and, and, and really increasingly as a team, as a initial launch team that has uh, a clear, direct and established track record with the particular group you were hoping to sort of partner with. But that trust me model, I think, is, is, is just gone. Um, you know, the other thing that I think um, that is going to be super duper challenge, and uh, maybe this doesn't, maybe this isn't so surprising to hear, uh, is, you know, all of these sort of retention benefits, right? And you know, I think that there was absolutely competition in, you know, in the world of, uh, in the world of, you know, Google's and Apple's and Amazon to see who could have the best benefits to see who could uh, provide, you know, the, 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 the best vacation policies, who could pay for more health uh, insurance, uh, who could pay for and provide, you know, more unique benefits that's over right you know i think that you know if you want to call that the the broad silicon valley sort of free lunch phenomena that's that's winding down and i think you know that the question is what i don't think is winding down is you know a lot of uh, dei initiatives that is something that i think will continue to see progress and i actually think those may be in opposition in some places right and so what's not clear to me the really interesting questions are um you know where where do fertility benefits fall Right. Fertility was something that nobody ever covered 10 years ago. I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but almost no company covered fertility. Uh, a super important benefit makes a huge difference to families, should be covered as a medical benefit, especially as we see all of the uh, all of the, the conditions that have infertility as a comorbidity. Right. That the notion that fertility isn't covered seems a little silly. But if you just go back 10 years, nobody covered that stuff. And so I, I, I wonder you know, in the in the push pull between DEI, let's get more, um, let's let's have more women in the workforce. Let's create an environment where people can start families and feel good about that. Let's create an environment where uh, you know you get to uh, participate, kind of regardless of what your family plan is. Where does that balance with the the free lunch phenomena? And and I think that's that's really up in the air, right? I, I am extraordinarily hopeful. Uh, because I've seen some of these benefits be so transformative for folks. And because to me, it just makes sense. I'm extraordinarily hopeful that stuff like fertility doesn't get caught up in that, uh, in that melee. But, you know, it, it in some ways looks like a retention benefit. And I think those are gone. And I'll throw in there, um, you know, that there's been a, that there's a phenomenon of the unpaid pilot for the hospital. I think that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's uh, Sure. Relatedly, there's this inter- there's this phenomenon of um, of startups, young companies with ve- that are venture backed, um, doing what's called financial innovation in selling to large enterprises. So this is selling to the employer benefits budget, or the hospital CIO, uh, or the hospital CFO, or the pharma commercial budget, or the pharma clinical budget, um, and they would. Uh, sweeten the offer with with good financial terms. So that could mean selling on a success mm-hmm. basis where there's a discount if it doesn't reach milestones. Or it could mean, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, shifting, uh, you know, uh, converting capital buys by the by the big enterprise into so that the, effectively the um, the the startup doesn't get the big cash up front that it, that it would have in the past. Um, or some other measure like that. And so in a sense, you had these large profitable companies like Pharma, and they, they might choose a software product based on the financial terms of it pre- in preference. 
And that meant that effectively the startup, which has a, a poor balance sheet, mm-hmm. that's, that's earnings negative, mm-hmm. <laughs> has a poor balance sheet, is taking the risk of the product onto its already poor balance sheet. Um, uh, but, but the big buyers, the enterprise buyers, they liked that. Oh. You know, they were more capable of taking that risk onto their own balance sheet, sure. but they liked that. Sure. And so that was funded by generous venture dollars. Um, exactly and was considered right. to be a crucial advantage. One, one start, one software, one software vendor, digital health company could use against others. Um, and I think that's going to go away. Um, or be, or be more restricted. Um, and finally, I think that um, prancing unicorns at digital health investor conferences are going to go away. Um, that was a low interest rate phenomenon. I don't know. Come on, Steve. So, Those are fun um, cocktail parties. You know, there's a lot of a lot of business got done there, right? Um, I, I think you're I think you're right on the on the balance sheet being an advantage for startups. Like that's that's toast. I do think like you're gonna you're gonna continue to see large buyers focus on performance. And so you know, um, I think. I think that the, the focus on pay for performance versus pay for activity is going to continue to be there for at least some part of the, the, the fee, regardless of what you're doing, whether it's, you know, security for hospital IT or whether it's, you know, obesity medicine services or other things like that. I think that, you know, large buyers are going to start, are, are just like, um, just like any other payer in the space say, well, um, you know, let's talk about pay for outcomes. There's going to be a, a real sort of component there. There has to be uh, of, of, you know, pay for service too. But I do think that the days of, you know, 10 years ago where you could come in and you can say, hey, this is all on a PEPM basis and you know you need it. So let's go. I think those days are over too, right? And I think, you know, the, the new normal will be somewhere in between. You can't carry it all on your balance sheet anymore. You can't say this is 100% at risk. And at the same time, nobody's going to buy, especially in an economic, uh, you know, retrenchment. Nobody's going to be able to buy in a way that says, well, I'm, you know, I just convinced my CFO to write a $10 million check for these services. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, you still get paid. I think, you know, like that, that, that has changed too. So I'll put out another call for, um, uh, for, questions uh, and uh, participation and comments. So uh, you can, uh, if you, if you're registered for the call-in app and, there, and you can still do that, it, it's very, it's a very quick process. Um, you can type in the text chat. Um, you can jump into the caller queue. Uh, uh, and also you can email me, Steve Wardell. Um, and uh, those questions that come by email, I will treat uh, as the, the writer as confidential and I'll ask the question. Um, so uh, feel free to jump in. And while we wait for some of those, uh, uh, I'll move on to, you know, so getting a little more practically minded, um, uh, you know, you act as both a CEO and an investor. Um, so, uh, you know, if you if you consider that people on this call, let's let's say that they are either pre-seed, pre-A, or pre-B. Um, and the goalpost just got moved on them. It used to be get big fast. Now it's get profitable now. Um, and what what has changed in the way that, that VCs are looking at these companies? So deals are happening. It's down. Um, but uh, what are they, you know, as a practical matter, what are the sort of metrics or standards? Um, and I'll, I'll throw one out, which is, you know, uh, get um, to cash flow break even in 18 months mm-hmm. is one standard I've heard thrown around. So, and that was not the case. That was not what people were asking for five quarters ago. So, <laughs> 
Just, can you go through what, what you're seeing out there in the marketplace for young company leaders? Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, you know, cash flow break even is – I'm seeing more for companies that are their later stage. You know, I'm not seeing folks say to a Series A company, hey, get to cash flow break even. I think everybody everybody recognizes that if you are finding a growth market, if you are doing something that's going to be impactful and your customers are excited about it, you're going to give up a lot of growth. If you only grow in a cash flow break even way, and to some extent, like that's why venture dollars exist. But, but, you know, I think for the later stage companies, a hundred percent, you know, everybody that I talk to on the later stage side is very focused there. Um, you know, if you're, if you are pre-seed, uh, the metrics honestly have not changed that much, right? You know, show me some kind of interest from, uh, from buyers something right you know if you if you think you're going d to c then then show me some uh, conversion if you think you're going to employer you know show me some early interest and and you know some kind of uh, uh, loose commitment or you know just show me something that, that sort of makes sense on paper and then show me some math on the back that says that this is not going to be a money losing thing forever that's that's what i think you, you tend to see for seed and the more you can do of either of those things the better right so you can get a great seed round done if you are uh, coming in, you know, with, uh, I don't know, a, a crazy partnership, if you've just partnered with HCA to provide, uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep in the cardiac vein, to provide cardiac care to, you know, telecardiac for their patients. Cool. Great. You are going to do an awesome round, right? Um, I think for series, for series A, uh, you know, what people want to see is gross margin positivity and growth, right? So it used to be that you need to see growth and that growth needed to be wild, and you need to show that if you put more money in at Series A, you're going to get a lot more growth. And so what people spent their seed capital on was, you know, hey, in the next six months, can I burn this capital so fast that my growth line goes vertical? And whether I've actually served these patients or not, who knows? Whether I have the the capacity or tools to serve them, who knows? But that demand is really there, right? Um, kind of the seed model, the seed requirements, but just on steroids. Uh, now I think there really is a push to show that you are gross margin positive, at least for, you know, kind of the scale parts of your business to show that you're gross margin positive uh, on, on a runway basis. And if you, uh, if you can't do that and you are looking for series A, I think you just got a lot more of explaining to do. Right. And I think you've really got to show people, um, you know, a, a version that you know, makes sense with the data you have of your model where you are positive. Right. So, again, you know, these these 2020, uh, 2020, 2021 acquisition models where you pay, uh, you know, more than LTR lifetime revenue for a patient. Obviously, that can't be anywhere close to a model today. And then I think, you know, series B and later, what folks want to see is um, is, is accretive growth. That is, you know, man, I have to, you're not cash flow positive. You're not a profitable. More cash. Um, but I think that what they do want to see is that not only have you found, figured out how to be gross margin positive, but, uh, you know, and, and depending on what you're doing in healthcare, you need to be substantially gross margin positive, right? Like if you're a software company, you've got to be really gross margin positive. On the services side, you know, I think you can show, you can show, you know, more reasonable gross margins. Um, you know, you need to, you need to show investors that you can scale through those sort of positive financial performance metrics. That is, you need to show them that with your series A dollars, you have gone from a good business to a larger good business. So it's a yes and model right? In 2020, it was crazy growth. 
now it is growth and some level of you know sort of internal sustainability, internal profitability, even if the total if the total business is not anywhere close to cash flow positive. That, that's great. That's actually one of the better ways I've I've heard that described for the new environment. So thank you. So so what we're going to do now is we're uh, we're is uh, Evan and I are going to go to the bar, uh, and what that means is that for those of you who scheduled to be to visit the show for an hour, um, this is a good juncture to sign off. Um, but for those of you who want to hear more, um, and we're, we're going to specifically talk about. Um, how fundraising sources look to CEOs realistically today. Next, um, you know, feel free to, to, you know, grab a drink, walk, come over to the bar with us. We're going to hang out. We're going to talk about how things are really going down in healthcare. Um, and, uh, uh, but, uh, so, so, but this is a good juncture for those of you who have to go after an hour to go. So, uh, with that said, you know, welcome to the bar, Evan. <laughs> good to be here. Thanks. So, um, you know, young companies today, they have they have money. They're worried about running out of money. Um, and uh, the first thing they should be doing is belt tightening. And they should have started belt tightening, you know, four to five quarters ago. Um, and, you know, we're seeing companies doing their second round of layoffs, uh, indicating that they that they could have tightened harder at first um, uh, and that it's still going on. So belt tightening is the first and primary source. Um, what does that mean, by the way, beyond um, laying off employees? It also means killing projects that that would take you know more than five years to become cash flow positive or something. Or uh, what else does it does belt tightening mean? Oh, I think I think it's probably shorter than that. I think you know right now you're seeing people, um, you're seeing some companies, and it depends on it depends on the company, it depends on the stability of the core model, it depends on you know a, a lot of. Uh, individual company requirements but you're seeing folks kill projects that don't show payback in the next 12 to 24 months which for you know for a venture back company these are more mature companies right like folks that are just serious see or later um you know i think you're seeing uh, uh you know real reductions there i think um you know it does mean layoffs or you know foregone hiring or not filling open positions or you know letting uh letting roles uh, get extinguished as folks leave you know through attrition uh that's that's all you know pretty straightforward um i think it also you know in those in those places where there is capacity in their model where there's ability in their model it means uh raising prices and seeing some of your customers depart as a result of that right but shifting out your lowest margin customers um so that you can you know really focus on those those places where you are providing the most value and therefore where those customers are the most willing to pay um and then you know then there's then there's kind of the basics of um you know uh, uh, <laughs> reducing uh, reducing the, the in-office perks and things like that. I think, you know, one thing that's a challenge is a lot of these companies are trying to get folks uh, back in office in a real way. And, you know, at the same time, they're trying to reduce some of those office costs. And so I think, you know, that's where I see folks sort of playing a little bit of a balance. And I, I'm also seeing, you know, unfortunately for some companies, the opposite of belt tightening and, the example that's most commonly used here is Salesforce, but this would also apply to a SaaS company in digital health where they built their model on every year their existing uh, customers had more employees and bought more of the products. And they were also okay with 
with price raises that went along with improvements in features and functionality of the products. Uh, and now, and so this is software vendors selling into big enterprises and seeing this and this being very favorable for their company finances and value creation at, the, at, at software vendors like Salesforce. And now they're seeing the opposite happen. And it, it is a, it's a, it's a, in a, in a tight funding environment and it's a big problem. And it is, uh, that companies are shedding seats um, and they are uh, dropping products and they are going and looking at the fine details of their contracts and figuring out if they and you know if they can just pay less somehow ne negotiating uh, you know uh, price decreases and all of this hitting um, software companies whose future was predicated on growth and who whose management team is counting on growth for their stock options and whose employees are there for for growth uh, and uh, and it's a it's a it creates a, a negative spiral for uh, for the software vendor. Um, so that that's also happening in today's environment. It's the opposite of belt tightening. Oh, I, I think that's exactly right. And you know where where you see that in health tech is, you know those entities that sold in on a promise, right? Back to some of our earlier themes that sold in on a promise, or that sold in with, you know, a value based, um, you know, sort of purely success fee based model, uh, where they haven't been able to achieve that promise or that success in the past, I think you would often see hospital buyers, benefits buyers, uh, you know, te technology stack buyers. You might see them say, well, it's there. It's, you know, it's going to make too much of a, it's going to make my employees too frustrated uh, to extract it, or, you know, it's going to be too much of a pain to have to build around it. And I think what you're now seeing is, oh, great. This is a place as a hospital buyer that I can reduce cost without having to fire my people. And so, you know, I think that, you know, it's not only uh, uh, seat erosion, it's also, you know, real contract erosion where, you know, if you haven't been able to deliver on your, on your, on your value, you know, it's, it's coming back to bite you now. And then look, I mean, that's healthy in, in some way, right? Not, it, it's not pleasant what's happening to you, but the fact that, you know, for our earlier conversation, some of these zombies were out there and ticking along uh, needed to be, needed to be rectified. And yeah, also thinking about that in the context of health tech. So um, at the hospital, you've got the finance, the, the CFO side and the CIO side. And uh, in theory, almost every product that's sold on the CFO side has a real return and it's, and it's an underserved area in hospitals. And so, and so that's looking good as hospitals spend money on the, on the finance side. So that that's things like claims integrity or uh, revenue cycle management Um uh, or even uh, patient pay uh, areas. Uh, and every product there has a rigorous financial return. And so spending more money in that area makes you more money as a hospital. But there's a theory that on the clinical side of hospitals, the EMR side, no product has ever had a financial return <laughs> to hospitals. Um, hospitals were bribed into buying all of it um, uh, through... Uh, meaningful use, mm -hmm. the $40 billion federal subsidy, uh, and, and and then regulations that forced people to buy. And so this is an area where uh, CIOs could really sort of ratchet it to um, to their existing uh, vendors. They can, uh, you know, they can cut um, uh, software and they can demand lower prices. Um, uh, and but it's but it's also you know, it's also really tough to switch. It's very expensive and tough to switch from all script to Cerner or something. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, that, the, that the vendors have that as protection. 
Uh, but you know that that's an area I would see as vulnerable right now to um, you know to the, the the kind of negative cycle that we're seeing in 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 B two B SaaS right now. I, I think you're probably right. If you have a clear savings based ROI that you sold in on you're probably feeling really safe right now because extracting you is going to cost up front and then it's going to cost over time. Great. You're, you're feeling pretty good. Um, I think if you don't have that, you, you gotta be looking around real hard. So the next area, um, we talked about belt tightening. The next area is CEOs going back to their existing syndicate. So the way this plays out is that, uh, an existing syndicate came together and backed a digital health company with a round. Um, and there was an implicit understanding that the company would meet milestones, be a bigger, uh, more mature company, and then it would go and find a new lead investor. Um, and that new lead investor had a number of properties that would, would, would bring some advantages to the firm, would lead the, would price and lead the round. And that pricing was very important because it was a new lead investor and therefore that pricing had legitimacy. Mm -hmm. It was an important signal uh, to the market because they were not already in the deal. So the conditions have changed a lot since, since that round was raised and since that market environment existed. And now a CEO is going back to his existing syndicate and saying, uh, I would like more money in a bridge or, or a, or a series B mm -hmm. or something. Um, what can they expect uh, in this environment? Are they going to be welcomed with open arms and the checkbook's going to come out and the check's going to get written uh, and they're going to be so, so you know, happy to see their existing portfolio company come back for more money in a tough environment? Uh, or, you know, and we can, we can kind of segment this into companies that are making their milestones or not making their milestones, mm -hmm. companies that are uh you know are have a path to cash flow break even or who don't have a path to cash flow break even what what is the kind of reception uh, and then there's also um funds that have a lot of dry powder and funds mm -hmm. that don't have a lot of dry powder you may discover that your prior syndicate doesn't have a lot of dry powder mm -hmm. uh, yeah i think um it's worth thinking about the incentives of the venture funds too um, right where, gosh, if you have a portfolio company that's doing poorly and you let it go, we have to write that down immediately. If you have a portfolio company and, uh, and, and it's got hope, uh, and you put some money into it, well, even if it goes badly, you have to write that down in, you know, a year or two. And, uh, you know, I, uh, there is, there's often, and, and I'm actually not super cynical about it. Right? I think uh, uh, there's often a lot of weight placed on these incentives. Say, oh, well, you know what? Like the the, the VC fund's just going to finance folks, even if they know they're losers, to keep them going. And, and I think, I think that's just not the case right now. I think, you know, if a company comes back and it is not performing and it does not have a clear path. In, in the eyes of its investors, who are already going to be positively predisposed, uh, it doesn't have a clear path to success. Um, no, I think you know investors are letting those companies go, and they're going to, as we talked about with companies hitting the wall, you know they're going to be doing that a lot over the next twelve months. I think. Um, I think when a company comes back and they're doing really well, but the prices that they may have seen in the broader market have been, you know punitive right or or perhaps there's a sense from the existing investors that um you know folks are just looking to uh 
uh, sort of pick something up at unfairly cheap prices, well, then there's support there. And, and so I think it, it really does depend. Of course, you know, you've got to um, you have to uh, be able to rely on a set of investors. If you're that entrepreneur, you've got to be able to rely on a set of investors that have more dry powder and, you know, can allocate out of their funds to do it. But I think you're seeing good companies, uh, you know, have access to dollars from their existing investors. You're seeing not so good companies here. Well, we should have gone differently, but. So um, let, let me treat. So uh, we need to uh, close off in a, in a couple minutes. So now is the time for um, our audience members to ask a question in the chat or send me an email um, at Stephen at Wardell advisors, LLC.com uh, or, um, uh, or, or join the caller queue. Um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to name a number of sources of funding and treat this like a lightning round. So I'd just like to get your, your instant couple sentence reaction to this. Okay. So let, let's say that you have a digital health CEO wants to raise a series B, um, can't get and sells into the pharma clinical budget. So this is like uh, clinical trial automation software, company, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, uh, they're selling into pharma. That pharma company has a corporate venture fund, mm-hmm. okay? And they can't get a new lead investor from a financial VC. Should, is it, is it, and they, they, and they know they have a good champion inside the pharma company whose career they're, they're advancing through selling their software product to the pharma company. Um, and should they, you know, is, is that corporate venture fund, uh, you know, possible uh, to to be their lead investor to just in, to, to to do the B round yeah to, um, totally even depends. if the smaller totally depends on the corporate venture fund so some corporate venture funds are very 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 hesitant to ever lead they like to put you know a few dollars in to companies that they think highly of others are happy to lead I'd say it's the minority of corporate venture funds that are that are happy to lead in my experience um, and I think you know the the traditional risk of oh now you're going to be perceived as a you know you took Lily's venture money you're a Lily company. Well, okay, you know, that's something you can deal with. It's maybe not ideal, but, you know, if the alternative is I can't get around done, you, you do it all day long. And, okay, so next is family offices. You've talked to family offices over time. In, in, in the recent past, family offices w- strongly wanted to get into your deals. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, uh, you know, public markets are way down um, and activity level in private deals is down. Uh, our family office is going to step in and fill the gap being being created here by lead investors who aren't leading. I, I think, you know, for, for this theoretical uh, uh, company selling into the pharma stack. Yeah, yeah, I think that you still have great opportunity to access um, uh, to access these entities. You know, it's it is um, it's, again, a question of leadership. Right. Many family offices will not lead. Uh, they want somebody else, presumably with, you know, more financial knowledge than they have to price. But I think, you know. If you could, if you can get your your um, your pharmaco to lead, and they're not taking the whole round, you can absolutely go uh, to to some of the world of family offices and have uh, you know and have have great success, and and frankly, just get a different set of exposure than you would typically get. Venture debt. Um, so uh, you know, if you can't get a lead investor, is is there an opportunity? For someone who's never gotten venture debt uh, to turn to venture debt for the first time to get them, maybe it's a bridge note uh, to get them through another year. 
I I do not see any of that getting done right now in that circumstance. I see folks taking plenty of venture debt as part of an existing round. But if you can't get another round done and you go to SVB and you say, hey, guys, I can't raise any money. Would you please give me a couple mil today? They will say, um, ha- have a nice day. Thank you. Yeah, I'm seeing that, too. Ba- basically, they, they only want, you know, you, so the key issue is that Many lead investors aren't leading. It's down in the area of Series A and Series B. It's down 70%. Uh, and so if you can't get the lead investor, then you can't get the venture debt. Yeah, that's um, absolutely right. Uh, uh, so consolidators, are we going to – so I'll say there's two kinds of consolidators. One kind of consolidator is is the the, the mid-to-large-size tech company consolidator. This is like Teladoc buying Livongo. Um uh, and uh, then there's the the large tier consolidator. This is like Oracle buying Cerner. Mm-hmm. Um, are we, and so, you know, we're in digital health. There has always been less consolidation than there should be. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's been the opposite in digital health. There's been entryism in digital health, talent entering, capital entering, young companies being start new co- new co formation all the time. Enormous amounts of that. Meanwhile, you look back 10, 15 years. There's been low levels of consolidation. It's not always clear why, um, uh, except that uh, uh, it, you know, it, um, one reason was that these digital health companies sometimes were literally the most highly valued companies in the world. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, at, at 16 times forward revenue or 20 times forward revenue, um, and therefore the Teladocs of the world and the Oracles of the world didn't want to do a deal that was instantly dilutive mm-hmm. to, them, mm-hmm. uh, to themselves. Um, and they, they also might have been waiting for the industry to just grow bigger and be more mature. And then when they did buy, they were often buying the number two or number three player and then saying that our sales force is going to make this company, whoever we buy the king. So mm-hmm. we're not going to pay a premium for the number one uh, market share competitor in the, in the new category or whatever. So um, consolidators are consolidated. Now that we may see that th- there's also a valuation overhang. So, there's, so I'm sorry. Consolidation has never been as strong as it should have been in this sector. Um, there's also still a valuation overhang of private companies that got valued and have not taken a down round yet or signaled that it's going to be easy for them to take a down valuation in a consolidation context. Mm-hmm. And consolidators don't want to waste their time with uh, CEOs and boards who are in arguments about whether to sell at a, at a down valuation level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Uh, in that context, are we going to see finally uh, a step up in the volume of consolidations that we've never seen in this sector with large tier and mid tier consolidators stepping in and increasing their buying activity? Or are we not going to see that? Um, I think you're not going to see it yet. And what I mean there is I think, you know, the only consolidator action that I see happening right now is for you know companies that are stand out in their space uh you know think about amazon and cvs's acquisitions right where they are still paying a premium either to public market price um or you know or to uh you know sort of private price right and so for those companies that are scaled that are doing well that are proven right not the companies that we've been talking about not these early stage health companies right but um, uh, you know i think for those companies that have proven that they are hitting out of the park you know you're still having uh consolidators that are willing to pay a uh, a, a robust price that maybe because the company's grown over the last three or four years maybe because they seem to have carved out a really unique space uh those prices are 
you know, kind of felt to be in line with maybe where they were a couple of years ago. I think what you haven't seen yet is consolidation of the companies that, you know, that, that, that aren't doing as well or that are second or third place in their space. I think you will see it. But I think right now, a lot of those folks are still able to operate and are still adjusting their expectations uh, to, to sort of, you know, what it means to be a second or third place performer in in kind of the, you know, the, their vertical in the digital health tech space. So I think you will see it. I think it's going to be 12 to 18 months, not coincidentally, when some of those same, uh, uh, when some of those same entities are hitting the wall. I think right now, you know, if you are a, you know, if you're this made up uh, cardiac uh, uh, service company uh, that we've talked about a couple of times theoretically, and you went out right now and you called, you know, the three other competitors in your space, you're going to get a price that is consistent with them expecting you to go out of business tomorrow. And uh, and if that's not the case, then you ain't going to sell. And I think that's why we haven't seen a lot of these consolidations yet. But but I expect we will. That's great. So then private equity. So there's, there's a curious phenomenon that's been going on for the last year, which is that um, uh, digital health CEOs are getting inbound calls from mid-level executives mm-hmm. at private equity funds um, who want to talk to them, want to have meetings, are saying they, make, they may invest in them, are saying they're going earlier stage uh, than before. Um, and, uh, uh, and so in general, these same CEOs who feel like they're really familiar with with the VC investors by name in the industry. They don't know these people by name and they don't know their fund by name, but they're getting an inbound call and asking for their time, asking to go into their data room. Um, are private equity funds going to uh, start really pick up their investment in venture stage, you know, series A, series B, series C, um, digital health companies? Absolutely not. I, I, I don't think so. Um, you know, I think that it was in, in a world of, of low yield, low interest rates and, you know, kind of a, a search for yield with, you know, with kind of a Tina, uh, there is no alternative uh, investor environment. They had to be in equities and you had to look for the most leverage. You had to look for the most risk. You know, these folks kind of um, uh, felt like they had to get earlier and had to find lower prices and higher yield. I think that, you know, with what has happened in the space over the course of the last 12 months, if anything, we're, we're seeing those investors, you know, pull out. And I think, look, you've seen that on, you've seen on the hedge fund side. I know you asked about private equity, but I think it's been really public on the hedge fund side where you've had, you know, some of the biggest players in 2020 and 2021, uh, you know, really get their hands burnt and, and pull out. And I think that, you know, similar, similar phenomena in private equity. I think the thing that hasn't changed is they're still making these calls. The associates are still calling and saying, Hey, you know, we'd love to talk, but what has changed is, you know, they're, they're, they're now sort of looking for more mature companies and, you know, they may still be talking to the early stage health tech, uh, 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 CEO, but they're saying to that person, yeah, well, you know, as we get to know you better over time, right, we should, we should talk. They're teeing themselves up for something in a few years. Very interesting. And I've, I've heard similar things. And I talked to 10 digital health CEOs who got these kinds of calls and, and one led to an investment. And that was a that was a special case, not a normative case. Yeah, I'm surprised the history so, shows that high. So last, um, uh, what's called pivot to services. So this is this is kind of interesting. Do you think that this will that, that we'll see more of the pivot to services and and will it will it work? Uh, so the, the idea here is that um, to to uh, 
make a digital health software product company, you have to spend millions of dollars on the product. And then you have to spend millions of dollars on building a national sales force. And then finally, you can scale it and get a company with high margins that grows fast that's worth a lot of money. And a lot of companies raised money on this premise. Now they find themselves in a very difficult environment. Maybe they can't raise the next round. Um, uh, and they are pivoting to be a service company. So this could be uh, services in in the digital health sector that are not actually care, or it could even be services that are care, such as actually becoming a pharmacy or actually becoming a mental health, um, uh, you know, provider. Uh, and, um, uh, and this is viewed as a way, you know, you have a company, that company has IP, it has a management team, it has investors, it has advisors. There was a lot of work to pull this together and you're not going to, you know, the, the, the environment is not favorable to building a, a scalable software product company right now or raising money to do so. And so you take your money, you still have $15 million on the books or whatever, and you, and you already had maybe a services line of business, an IT support line of business for selling into hospitals or, or a, a pharmacy line of business or a, or a mental health services line of business that, that helped give you give birth to your IP in the first place. And now you double down on that. And that will be a, low mar a lower margin business that will not scale as much, but it will get to break even quite quickly. Uh, and that is what it takes to pivot to that, to get through this tunnel and then have another bite of the apple on the other side. Um, do you think we'll see, we have seen companies do this. We will see companies do this. Is, is this what it takes to, uh, if it's available to you, should you do this to survive? Um, I think that we will see companies talk about doing this. I think that, um, you know, if you're talking to a, uh, to a leader at a company that today builds software and is thinking that this is the only path forward, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's interesting for them if they don't feel like they have another alternative. I think the main opportunity here though is in convincing your investors to give you one more dollar. Um, I think that. Uh, I think that as a viable business path, this is going to work for almost no one, right? If you, if you have built a set of software tools and your new theory is we are going to click our own buttons so much better than anybody else that we are going to make money in our space, it feels like there's a lot of leaps of imagination you have to make there. And, you know, in point of fact, if your software was so good that it gave you a, a, a material advantage in your space, you probably would have had some success selling it into folks that already played in that space, right? And, and I'm, maybe there's some limitations here. Maybe there's some exceptions. You know, uh, I think, you know, at-risk care models may be one place. Although I also think, not surprisingly, that is a place where you're seeing, um, you know, you're seeing more folks uh, 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 sort of talk about this care model. By the way, I think, that the, I think that the reverse is also true. That is, there's plenty of services companies that are saying, hey, we're going to go from providing a set of uh, a set of services for our area of care and now we're going to spend less money we you know don't have to employ these these doctors uh, we're going to just sell into existing care providers and then with that they get a chance to you know do some big layoffs and raise a little bit more money from their investors and get one more shot at it but again like this isn't going to work the tools that you built internally to be able to serve your people are never ever game ready as sort of pre-rolled software tools. And as a result, what usually ends up happening when people make the switch from services to software is they, you know, they, they go through a long period of retooling and then usually run out of cash before they get a chance to really launch in the market. And they figure out that, oh, it is hard to, it is hard to do software sales. So I, I think, you know, the real reason you see this is because the grass is always greener 
as a software executive, you can convince yourself that services be so much easier. People would just see the light of how good your, your tools are. They get it. Uh, and as a service executive, you say, gee, if I just didn't have to employ all these people, uh, I could just sell my awesome software. It would be fantastic. But the reality is, you know, in, in these cases, you probably just don't have a product that is as differentiated as it needs to be. And so I think this is a great way to convince your investors to get one more shot. I think this is probably a terrible way to actually uh, actually build a successful company. All right. Well, thank you. Um, uh, so um, uh, let's see. So with that, we will wind it up. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Evan. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun to, uh, to, to chat and connect. So you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk uh, with host Stephen Wardell. Our thanks to our guest, Evan Richardson, CEO of Form Health. Uh, you'll find a list of upcoming Investor Talk shows at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, where my handle is at Stephen Wardell. To get notice of, of upcoming Investor Talks, sign up for our MailChimp list. Uh, our next show is called Get It Right First, De-Risking Product Strategy with Laurel Sweeney and Amy Siegel on Wednesday, March 